Stephanie's at the back with Bible boxes. And I'm going to invite you to turn to Mark 6. The lectionary has a start at uh, 14. We're actually going to start at 12, but Mark 6. The church is the church only when it exists for others, not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell people of every calling what it means to live for Christ, to exist for others. Many years ago, Mark and I were sharing a meal with a couple who um, are pretty adamantly opposed to God. Despite this, we have a good relationship with them, and we pray before we see them, asking that the Lord be in our time and guide our conversation. This was an interesting dinner because for the first time, we were able to share the gospel with them in a way that had never been before possible. But it was actually a difficult dynamic because while one of them kept asking questions, honestly and sincerely, the other one tried equally to stop it. So tell me about your church. Oh no, we don't want to talk about religion. So tell me what you believe. You believe that? Uh, Yeah, that isn't true. I believe in the universe and the goodness of humans. For the record, I hate this. Can we just stop this? Okay, I think we've had enough now. It was a very strange experience that Mark and I processed later because at every opening with one of them, there was equal opposition on the other side. It was intense and such a reminder to us that wherever we go, we take the spirit of the Lord with us. So we're ready to share, but we're also ready for the pushback. Today, we study a heartbreaking passage in which we see the particulars of how John the Baptist died. The gospel writer Mark inserts this tragedy in between telling us how Jesus sent out his disciples to share the gospel and them coming back. And it seems to be an intentional juxtaposition, showing the reader something important that we need to pay attention to, something more than just coincidence here. We are a people who are sent out to tell others about the kingdom of God. And as Jesus instructs his disciples to preach, he tells them to do the same thing that John the Baptist did. Before we read how John died, Jesus tells his followers, when you go out, preach repentance. They were to tell those who listened to the message That to find God, you need to turn from your sin and follow him, just like John proclaimed. Now, it is this preaching of repentance that had gotten John into so much trouble. Because telling other people they need to change their ways is usually what lands Christians in hot water. Everyone wants to hear about the grace and the love of God. But very few want to be told that they are in sin. Nobody right here, likes to be told that they're wrong, especially about the course of their life or the state of their soul. Yet a call to repentance 
has in it the very truth that God is correct and we are not. And if we are to know him or walk with him, then we have to make a change in our lives. Because this life is about God first. And that is difficult for us to acknowledge sometimes. And because of this, those who speak for God are often in danger of being silenced by those who reject their message. So let us read together Mark 6, beginning at verse 12. They, the disciples, went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed the people. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, "Mm, he's Elijah. And others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, Oh, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths, sorry, because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your wisdom now. As we talk about some things that we see in this passage. Thank you for your word. May it come alive, God, in our hearts and lives. Amen. In the Gospels, we know that John the Baptist was the first to enter the scene after a long silence. God's plan had not been made known to a general audience since the prophet Malachi some 400 years before. John comes as a forerunner of Jesus and paves the way for the Lord's ministry. But John, of course, as we know, doesn't fit the model or the mold of a well-dressed, educated, tactful rabbi. But he speaks with the authority and power of one sent from God. And so people listen. 
His words change people's lives as they are primed for all that Jesus will do. John's ministry is a key bridge for Christ, and it is poignant, I think, that as Jesus begins to send out his first disciples, John's ministry ends. John, as a true prophet, has spoken truth where God has led him to, including to Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee. Tetrarch, I learned this week, means that he rules a fourth of the kingdom that his father had. His father was Herod the Great, the same Herod that ruled during the birth of Jesus and did unspeakable atrocities to many, including his own relatives. This Herod, Antipas, during the time of John, had married his half-brother's wife, Herodias, who is also actually his niece, which is gross, and unlawful on two counts. Because Herod is the leader of the Jewish people, John makes it publicly and privately known that this is sin. This does not sit well at all. So he is killed. Again, John becomes the forerunner as his death foreshadows the one that Jesus will have. And so we circle back to our main idea again. That those who speak for God are often in danger of being silenced by those who reject their message. And in this passage, I want to talk about four different reasons why we see that this is true. We see because of hatred, which is battle of the spirit. Because of pride, which is battle of the heart. Because of a desire to please, which is battle of the flesh. And because of silence, which is battle of the mind. As we talk about these four reasons, we will also see how the characters and the narrative exemplify the ones who are silencing the messenger by their actions. So, the first reason why God's people are in danger of being silenced is because of hatred. Those who are entrenched in their sin want it legitimized by people of belief, not condemned. And when this doesn't happen, they often strike back. Herodias, as we see, was a very strong force to be reckoned with. We actually see that she is a more capable leader than her husband, but she has no goodness in her. She has everything she wants. The husband that she got divorced for, a lovely daughter, real, not imagined power. So why would John's rebuke even matter? This man who eats locusts and honey should seemingly be nothing to her. She is in the position of power. Why does it cause her? Such vexation. She gets so mad at John's words and then nurses that grudge, waiting for a time to exact her vengeance. When we see this depth of opposition to God's truth, we need to remember that this is not just a simple disagreement between Herodias and John. This is a battle that's being waged on a much different plane. John speaks for God with the authority of the Almighty, and although She may not see it. Herodias is angry, not at the messenger, but at the one who sent him. When we go out at God's people, we cannot be surprised by the level of hatred that we might encounter. Jesus told us we would be condemned just like he was. We see this in various ways in our lives, especially with our brothers and sisters around the world who are daily persecuted and killed for their faith. But for us, where we live, it is difficult 
to want to be bold in the face of nastiness. Of course, we want to retreat. We don't want to go there. One of the striking aspects of John's life is the constancy of his character and his message. He never shirks away from being the mouthpiece of the Lord. John told this couple the truth, not just to proclaim God, but also out of concern for them. There's forgiveness for those who repent. He wasn't simply condemning them. He was trying to give them good news. We don't have to stay in our sin. God has provided a way out. When we speak for God, it's not about us. And while we may be personally affected by it, in this case, very personally affected by it, and while that may be little comfort in the face of hate, it is not personal. It is between them and God. And we must never strike back at the same level of vitriol. We are people of love. And we must react accordingly. Let us never be silenced by those who are fighting God. Because one day they may turn like Paul and turn all of that energy into loving Jesus and building the kingdom. Second, we see that God's messengers can be silenced by pride, which we clearly see in the actions of Herod himself. When we read Mark's words, they indicate that Herod had a relationship with John. Mark tells us that he has been talking directly to Herod. That Herod had a holy fear of John. That he protected him. That Herod liked to listen to John, but was puzzled by him. Herod is not keen on changing his actions, but his heart is leaning in to what John has to say. Herod liked John, again, because he was attracted to God's spirit, not just because John was a great guy. Herod seems to be a person who is at war with himself. He gets close to the church, and then he throws John in jail. He gives this big party, but then he protects John's life. He throws a banquet, he offers grandiose gestures, and then realizes he's done the wrong thing. And in the end... Mark reports that he is distressed about John, but yet he kills him to save his reputation because he's given his word. What kind of leader would he seem to be if in front of his noble guests, he retracts an oath? He saves his distressed face, but still John dies. But then he can't get rid of the guilt because he knows his heart is engaged enough to know that it's wrong. That's why he's having crazy thoughts that John has been reincarnated. He can't get the blood off his hands. So his heart wavers because his heart is convicted. But he never surrenders. Even later on when faced with Jesus, right before the crucifixion, Herod cannot let go of his own prideful power. No one is going to take his kingdom. Some of the scholars I read this week likened Herod's heart to having the soil that Jesus talks about that gets choked by the thorns. He wants to know more of God's word, but wavers and ultimately allows his worries about his kingdom and his wife and what people think of him to choke out what the Lord is trying to do. 
We know this is true in life with some to whom we witness. The parable of the soils is an accurate metaphor for our hearts. And it is difficult to watch those whom we long to know God get suffocated by the world in such a way that they can no longer see him. Or they are so caught up in what the world has to offer that they reject him. It might seem like they get close and then they do something contrary to following him. They get close and then they do something destructive in an attempt to save their own life. They may even be racked by guilt that they can't get rid of. But then their actions make it clear. Yeah, I don't think that it's God I need. But the price they pay is they end up losing the kingdom of God in exchange for their own life. If you have someone like this in your sphere of influence, I encourage you to pray for their heart and look for open doors to talk to them. The third way we see the messenger get silenced in this passage is through the actions of the daughter, who epitomizes the desire to please above all else. From the writings of Josephus, the Jewish historian, we know her to be Salome. She rejects the message of God because she is busy seducing those around her. Her focus is on the approval she receives from doing the absolute wrong things. She is Herodias' daughter from her first marriage to Philip, Herod's half-brother, and it is believed that she was in her late teens, ready for marriage. She is young to be used as a pawn in a fight she doesn't belong in. But she gladly puts herself there. Salome wants to please so badly that she will dance in front of a room of leering men, which is not befitting a young woman of her station. Imagine a world leader today having their daughter do the same. And she is so eager to appease her hateful mother that when Herodias makes her gruesome request, the girl goes quickly and demands it of Herod. She is young. She has been raised without God in an amoral way, not knowing that there is a different life possible for her. Now, you may know some young people in your life who have been raised with no God and no morals, and they are lost souls looking for meaning. They may have a need for validation wherever they can get it, but they're not going to find what they're looking for until they experience the deep love and healing of Jesus. It's so necessary for us to reach out to young people like this, but very difficult because when trust has been broken so young, it's very difficult for them to trust anybody. It's hard for them to want a God that they think is far away or doesn't care when there is such instant gratification here. This is often a primal need for love. So prayer and wisdom is needed in talking to those who have been used so badly. They may reject the messenger out of ignorance, but they need to know that they are cared about by a father who would never hurt them. The last reason that those who speak for God are in danger of being shut down is because of those who are silent. In this passage, there are a room full of military commanders, high officials, and leading men of Galilee. It is not recorded that one of them stood up for what was right. To spare a man's life whose greatest wrong was telling the truth. 
Of course, it would have been politically harmful for them. It certainly would have been uncomfortable, but it was already uncomfortable. But not one of them stands up to save John's life. There was not one righteous person in the group who followed God and would defend John or defend his precepts. In some ways, I wonder if this is not the most dangerous of all of the ways that the gospel is squelched. The English philosopher Edmund Burke said, The only thing necessary for triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. When those who are indifferent to God allow terrible things to happen by those who oppose him, the results are catastrophic. We see it all over the world today. We see it in our cities. We see it in our homes sometimes. People who are indifferent or fearful of retribution have a hard time repenting because they won't take a stand, because they want to hedge their bets on who is the most vocal or who is in authority or who can help them the most. But as God's people, we must continue to stand up for what is right, to call out evil when we see it. We must be leaders and strong voices in all arenas. We have to make a difference by influence and speak the truth. I was thinking that if this section of scripture were a film, and we could see in the beginning the disciples going from town to town to proclaim repentance because Messiah had come. And they were healing and helping and caring for others and anointing people in the name of the one who had sent them. We would see that they went humbly to do good, taking little with them as the master had directed. So thrilled are they to be used in God's work to come back and tell Jesus what's happened. But then the film cuts away to show the horrific scene being played out in Herod's palatial house at the sumptuous feast where John's head is served on a platter. And as we see the drama unfold, we understand afresh why Jesus had to come. We know that God coming to earth does not stop our murderous, prideful, seductive, silent ways. But he does offer real forgiveness and power to live daily by his spirit through a tangible relationship that fills us with joy. But the scene shows us why we must not stop calling people to right living. Why we must continue to introduce people to Jesus, no matter how they might try to silence us. We cannot choose their actions, but we can choose to be obedient and faithful to the one who sends us. Because we are a people who go out in the name that is above all names. Who graciously gives us breath every day. And we must keep saying the truth of God as he directs. Because the battle for people's souls is real. As Christians, we have chosen to believe in the eternal one and must invite others to know him as we do. The best news, I think, is that while people might try to silence a messenger, the message will never falter. And because of resurrection power, John lives right now. That is the hope of God. Let us pray.